Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a sovereign grace fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently working our way through the book of Isaiah. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. I suppose the best place for us to start tonight is in Genesis chapter 3. We're just going to read a short bit starting around verse 14. This is when God is handing out punishments and curses as a result of Adam and Eve's rebellion. Starting at verse 14, and the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you more than the cattle and more than every beast of the field and on your belly shall you go and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel to the woman. He said, and this is kind of why we're reading this. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. And you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to the dust you shall return. So in the midst of handing out punishments and curses, To the serpent and the woman and the man, God emphasized that to the women, pain in childbirth was going to be their particular lot to bear. And then through the rest of the Bible, when describing times of trouble, tribulation, pain, agony, it is often compared to childbirth and the labor that precedes childbirth. And in fact, when we read about the descriptions of the Great Tribulation, we read that men everywhere are going to walk around bent over, holding their sides and their stomach like a woman in labor about to give birth. So that analogy is real obvious in the Bible. That idea of the labor of childbirth being compared to pain, difficulty, tribulation, But in what we're about to read from Isaiah tonight, you can now turn to Isaiah 42. And we'll be starting tonight in verse 14. And in that verse, you're going to see God liken himself to a woman in labor, working hard at what he is doing and comparing it to the exact same analogy that he has already provided for people going through trouble and tribulation. This is what is known as an anthropomorphism. What it means is God, in order to describe himself, 
likens himself to things that human beings are already familiar with and then compares himself to that thing, like, for instance, having an arm. Whenever he creates those analogies one for one between himself and people, he is anthropomorphizing himself so that we can understand it. He's doing it for our benefit. God is about to say that he has been keeping silent to Israel for a while now. And what he seems to be indicating is he was letting them get away with their own rebellion, their own willfulness, their own sinfulness, and that he wasn't immediately responding to them and punishing them or correcting them. Instead, he has just kept silent for a long time and let them have their way. Very much like when he brought them out of Egypt after giving them 400 years to become a great number of people in Egypt. He said that the reason he waited that 400 years was because the iniquity of the Amorites had not come to the full yet. So he gave the Amorites 400 years to become really, really guilty so that then he could use his people Israel to punish the Amorites and take their land. Same kind of thing here. He's allowing Israel to continue in their rebellion until they reach the point of genuine guiltiness before him. And when he exercises himself to pour out appropriate punishment to them, he likens it to himself groaning and gasping and panting, but he's the omnipotent God. He's all-powerful, so he would never groan or pant, and yet he anthropomorphizes himself in order to indicate the difference between being completely quiet and allowing them to get away with it to exercising himself in response to what they've been doing. So that is verse 14 of Isaiah 42, and that's where we're beginning tonight. I have kept silent for a long time. I have kept still and restrained myself. So God is saying, even in your rebellion against me, I have not poured out on you the kind of punishment you deserve. But now, like a woman in labor, I will groan. I will gasp and pant. And I will lay waste the mountains and the hills. So now that tells us what the exercise, the gasping and the panting is about, that God is going to activate his power in order to lay waste to the mountains and the hills and wither all their vegetation. He's going to bring about famine. And I will make the rivers like the coastlands. He's going to dry up the rivers. So he's going to bring about drought. I will dry up all the ponds. So here's God saying, I am going to finally bring about an appropriate punishment on Israel, even though in his long suffering, he has waited. He has allowed themselves to build up their guilt. But then, just amazingly, in the midst of saying that Israel is so guilty that he is going to punish them, and we know that this is right on the verge of the Babylonian captivity. He has already taken the northern tribes into the Assyrian captivity. And now he's going to bring Babylon down on the southern kingdom. And so he's activating himself in order to start 
punishing both Israel and Judah, and yet in the midst of the declaration of corrective punishment, he's also the leader. He's also the guide. He says, I will lead the blind by a way that they don't know. I've had a couple of good friends in my life that were blind. And one thing I know about blind folks, they prefer familiarity. They like to go places that they're already familiar with. I can remember one time Johnny was sitting in my car with me and we pulled into Kmart here in Smyrna. And I said, I just have to go in and grab a couple things. Do you want to come with me? And he said, no, I've been in there. I know what it's like. He was kind of saying, no, I'm already familiar with that. I don't need to re-familiarize myself with that again. So God here, knowing that that is the case with blind people, says that he's going to be their guide and take them into places that they don't know. In paths that they do not know, I will guide them. I will make darkness into light before them. And I will make rugged places into plains. In other words, he's going to smooth out their walk, smooth out the difficult areas. They can't see the rugged terrain ahead of them. That's going to make walking on that terrain really, really difficult. God says, I'm going to smooth it out for them. And these are the things that I will do, and I will not leave them undone. When God declares that, he's saying, I'm going to do it, and you can count on me doing it, because I'm not going to leave it undone. So I'm going to exercise myself and stir myself up in order to punish the people who deserve punishment. Like a woman in labor, groaning, gasping, panting, and then laying waste to the mountains and the hills, and then bringing about the withering up of all their vegetation, bringing famine on them, and making the rivers and the coastlands and the ponds all dry up and bringing drought to those areas. And yet, by contrast, one verse later, but I'm going to take care of the blind. I'm going to take care of the people who, who need help, who need to be guided. I'm going to take them to the places that they don't know, and I'm going to make their darkness into light before them. I'm going to smooth out the rugged plains before them, and I will do that, and I won't leave it undone. And then they shall surely be turned back and utterly put to shame who trust in idols, who say to molten images, you are our gods. So with each verse here, he's laying out just little pictures of the things he intends to do. He's going to care for those that are his, who are walking in their blindness. He's going to punish those who deserve punishment. And those who have trusted in idols rather than trusting in him, he's going to turn them back and utterly put them to shame. Now, remember contextually that this is all within the big rubric of God saying, I'm God. I'm the only God. There's nobody like me. Your idols aren't like me. There's no man like me. Who are you going to compare me to? I'm the only God who can do these things. So the reason that he has listed these disparate three different things is to say, I do all this. 
the one who punishes and corrects, the one who brings down mountains, and the one who clears up plains, the one who guides people who are desperately in need of help, and the one who brings famine, the one who brings lack of water to the people I want to punish. I am the same God who's going to punish people who chases after gods. It's like he's saying, okay, now which of you can do that? And which of your gods of molten metals can possibly do that? I'm the God who does all those things. Go one chapter forward. Go to chapter 43 for a minute. Same context. Verse 8. He says, bring out the people who are blind. And even though they have eyes, they don't see. Bring out the deaf, even though they have ears. And all the nations have gathered together in order that the peoples may be assembled. Who among them can do what I do? Who can declare this? Who can proclaim to us the former things, the things that already happened? Let them present their witnesses so that they can be justified. Let them make their case or let them hear and say, it's true. So I just want you to see the context here that God is Again, demonstrating that he is the only one who can do these kind of things like opening the ears of the deaf and opening the eyes of the blind. And that is why it is so significant that when Jesus walked on the planet, he did exactly that. He opened the eyes of the blind and he opened the ears of the deaf. And not only did he do that physically, he did that spiritually. It is yet more evidence that that was actually God walking on the planet because he did these very things. And so God says, who else can do this? What do you got? Here's my evidence. Here's the things I can do. I can punish the nations. I can bring down kings. I can destroy mountains. I can smooth out rough places. I'm a guide to the blind, and I'm a terror to the wicked. Who else can do that? They shall be turned back and be utterly put to shame who trust in idols, and who say to molten images, you are our gods. So in verse 18, he then says, again returning to this idea of the blind and the deaf, he now declares to them, hear, you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Who else can do that? Tom, go ahead, heal some blind people. There's no human being that can do that. There's no god of molten metal that can do that. There's no false god of wood nailed to a perch somewhere that can do that. There's nothing else that has ever been worshipped in the history of mankind that can do the things that only Yahweh can do. He can go to the blind and say, stop being blind. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He walked around healing blind eyes. But he also would say things like, you're not going to hear this unless you have ears to hear and eyes to see. Unless I take out your stony heart, give you a heart of flesh. Unless I give you my spirit of understanding and wisdom and knowledge. So not only was he demonstrating that he was God, but while he was here walking on the planet, he was satisfying these very promises right here in Isaiah of God demonstrating that he's the only one who can do these kinds of things and that by declaring it, it is. 
Because this is the exact same God who said, let there be light. This is the exact same God who created everything with the word of his power. So then he's the one who can walk up to a completely spiritually blind person and say, and now you can see. Thank God. He's the very one who can walk up to physically blind people and not only say, and now you can see, or say to lame people, get up and walk. He's the same one who can say, your sins are forgiven because he has the power to do all that and do it by declaring it. And so God lists that and says, what do you got? You going to do it? Anybody else going to do it? If he doesn't do it, it's not getting done. Nobody else has this kind of authority and power. Hear, you deaf, and look, you blind, so that you can see. Now, in verse 19, he's going to refer to my servant. And you may remember from last week that this chapter began with, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations, and he will not cry out or raise his voice, nor will he make his voice heard in the streets. And we identified that as being Christ. And in fact, even the translators of the NASB took the time to capitalize the word servant within that context, because we're talking about Christ. But then when you get to verse 19, there's another reference to servant. And the NASB does not capitalize it because they recognize that this is now referring to Israel, who God has previously referred to as his servant. And yet he's going to say, who is blind but my servant? Israel are the people who are blind to everything he has told them. They've gone off and chased their foreign gods. They haven't followed his rules, his laws, his precepts. And so he says they are blind. Who is so deaf as my messenger whom I sent? Here he is sending Israel out into the world to proclaim the holiness and the goodness and the standards of God. And yet he says they don't understand it. They don't get it. Previously in Isaiah, we read that God blinded them purposefully blinded them so that they would not get it. Paul picks it up in the New Testament and says because of that blindness that God has put on them, that message of the gospel of salvation is now going to the Gentiles because God has blinded them. And now God says, who is as blind as my servants? And who's as deaf as those whom I send? Who is so blind as he that is at peace? The NASB says, at peace with me. That seems to be the implication. He says, or who is so blind as the servant of the Lord? So he's saying, my people Israel, the ones whom I have chosen, the ones who are called by my name, are blind and deaf to me. Why does he say that? Because when you get to chapter 43, he's going to say, and I'm going to redeem them. They're completely incapable. They don't understand me. They don't get it. They don't comprehend it. They can't hear it. Who's as blind as they are? Nobody's that blind. And I'm going to fix their problem. I'm going to heal their diseases. I'm going to open their eyes. I'm going to redeem them. And so, again, we see the goodness of an absolutely sovereign God who can declare that his people 
don't get it, don't understand, cannot see, cannot hear, and he'll use them as an example to say, the world is in the state of blindness under the influence of the prince of the power of the air, and yet they have the revelation. They have the prophets. They have the ordinances of God. They have the law. They have Moses, and they still don't get it. How do you get blinder than that? So that you really understand the desperate state of Israel. So that when you get to chapter 43, you just see nothing but grace. You see God saying, and I'm going to heal them. I'm going to redeem them. I'm going to bring them back to this very land that I promised them. Because that glorious future for Israel is always a reality that God never forgets to include. You have seen many things, says verse 20, speaking to Israel. You've seen many things, but you do not observe them. You don't look at them closely. You're not paying attention. Your ears are open and none of you hears. <laughs> there's, there's no apparent hindrance to you. And yet I say these things plainly to you and you don't hear it. You don't get it. There's nobody more deaf, more blind. Look at verse 21. The Lord was pleased for his own righteousness sake to make the law great and glorious. Paul picks that up. Romans 7 and says that the law is righteous. The law is holy. There's nothing wrong with the law. The law is glorious. The law is completely right and appropriate. The problem is us. The problem is that we can't do the law because of the sin that is inherent in us. Here is Isaiah declaring that because of the righteousness of God and because he wants to display his righteousness and he explains what righteousness would look like among humans if they could actually do it and the Lord was pleased for his own righteousness sake to make the law great and glorious. In other words... He made sure we couldn't do it because there's not a one of us that are great and glorious. He just said, blind, incapable, deaf, chasing all the wrong stuff. And despite that, God gave them a law, a high law, a perfect law, a glorious law, a righteous law, great law. They just couldn't do it. That was their problem because they're blind and because they're deaf and they just don't get it and they just can't understand it. But this is a people who are plundered and despoiled. That seems to be a reference to the fact that the Babylonian captivity is coming right around the corner and they are in fact going to be plundered and they are in fact going to be despoiled and the treasures in the temple and the treasures that belong to the king are all going to be plundered and taken away into Babylon. And then they're going to be running for cover as the armies of Babylon are destroying the walls and burning the temple in Jerusalem. They run for cover. They end up in the caves. They run hidden away in the prisons, anywhere they can go. This is a people who are plundered and despoiled. All of them are trapped in caves or are hidden in prisons. And they have become a prey with none to deliver them and a spoil with no one to say, give them back. 
because even their king, the only one who would have the authority to say to Nebuchadnezzar, no, you can't have them. They're mine. They're my people. This is my land. This is the temple. This is the city. This all belongs to me. The kings of Judah, their power had been so undermined by God himself. They had become corrupt enough or impotent enough in their own power that God says, and there's going to be no one left to say, no, 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 you can't have them. Give them back. The people are going to be completely prey and completely spoiled with no one to help them. Who among you is going to listen to this? Remember, this is still God's defense of himself. He's saying what I'm going to do in the future. He's saying this is going to happen to these people. I'm telling you what the immediate future is for these people. I've told you what the long-term future is. I've told you what their history is. I've told you what the meaning is. And then who among you is going to hear it? Who's going to listen to it? Who among you is going to give ear to this? Who will heed and listen hereafter? In other words, once it happens... Once Nebuchadnezzar attacks Jerusalem and takes these people for a spoil and takes them into Babylon, they end up in caves and they end up in prisons and they end up spoiled and they end up slaughtered. When all of that happens to them, who's going to look back, read my word and say, oh, God said this was going to happen? Because again, he's just displaying, I'm the only one who can do this. Who among you will give ear to this who will give heed and listen hereafter? Who gave Jacob up for the spoil? Who gave Israel to the plunderers? Do you get the point? I do all this. I'm the only one who does this. I'm the reason Jacob is given up for a spoil. It wasn't the strength of Nebuchadnezzar. Remember that Assyria had gotten right to the very border right practically to the walls of Jerusalem and then God sent an angel and killed 85,000 one night and they went back the way they came 185 yeah in one night and they went back the way that they came God could protect them if he wanted to so he's saying I'm the one that gave up Jacob I'm the one that gave up Israel to the plunderers was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned and in whose ways you were not willing to walk, and whose law they did not obey. So God not only takes credit for the fact that he's the one that's going to turn them over, he explains why he's going to turn them over. Because this, again, is a characteristic that God keeps emphasizing, that he is the God who not only can tell you the future and tell you history, he can tell you why those things occur. The reason that he's going to give Jacob up, the reason that he's going to give Israel to the plunderers is because Israel has sinned against him and they didn't walk in his ways and they didn't obey his law. And so, verse 25, so he poured out on them the heat of his anger. That goes back to, I've kept silent for a long time. I've kept still, I restrain myself, but now like a woman in labor, I will groan, I will gasp, I will pant, and I will lay waste to the mountains and the hills, wither all the vegetation, make the rivers into the coastlands. So he poured out on Israel, on Jacob, 
the heat of his anger. That word heat, by the way, lays at the very core of the word zeal. This is the zeal, the heat of God being displayed. His righteousness, his holiness is breaking out in a display of his judgment, of his correction of his people. So he poured out on Israel, on Jacob, the heat of his anger and the fierceness of battle. And it set him aflame all around. That's a particularly interesting descriptor because that's exactly what happened to Jerusalem when the temple was burned down. Yet, he, Israel, Jacob, here's blindness. This is why earlier he said, who's as blind as my people? Who's as deaf as my people? Despite the fact that I'm going to punish them, despite the fact that I'm going to send them into Nebuchadnezzar's rule, into Babylon, despite the fact that I'm going to give them up to the plunderers, they still do not recognize it. And it burned Israel, and he paid no attention. Okay, so that is the state, that is the prediction, that is the condition of Israel nationally, of Judah in particular. If that was all we had, if that was the end of our reading, we could say, yeah, God gave up on Israel, and rightly so. I mean, after all, not only are they blind and ignorant and deaf, even though he says you can hear, but you don't, you don't get it. Your ears are open, but you don't hear it. Even though he says, you, you see these things, but you don't comprehend it. You don't take it in. Who is as blind as you people? I demonstrate myself, and I send you prophets, and I send you a land of milk and honey, and I give you a righteous, holy law, and you don't do it. So then I take the opposite approach and make you a plunder and give you over to your enemies, and you still don't get it. God would be well within his rights to say, never mind then. Just forget Israel. Chapter 43. But now, thus says Yahweh, your creator, O Jacob. A minute ago, who gave Jacob up for the spoil and Israel for the plunder? That is real, particular language. He's identified them as Jacob. He's identified them as Israel. There's no question about who he's talking to. Or who he's talking about. Remember that there is no chapter division here. Isaiah is continuing with the exact same argument. Who's like God? But now thus says the Lord Yahweh, your creator, O Jacob. Exact same people. I really want you to get this. The exact same people who were blinded and deaf and rebellious and chasing foreign gods. The very people who God turns over to the plunderers because they refuse to do his law, because they refuse to walk in the way that he has assigned for them. The one who you would think by all rights, God should say, okay, I'm done with you. But now thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, here's what he says to you. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. What a contrast. What an astounding contrast between your guilty, 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 and guilty, and, and guilty. 
with more guilt. And you're rebellious. And you do everything your own way. And you won't listen to me. And you won't walk after me or my statutes. And that makes you completely guilty. So am I going to give up on you? Too much of the modern church says, yeah. Their guilt was too much. And God gave up on them. God's response is, don't fear. You're going into Babylon. You'll be there 70 years. Don't fear because I've redeemed you. He hadn't yet redeemed them. It's the same language that he uses for redeeming Israel out of Egypt and bringing them to the land of milk and honey, bringing them to Canaan land. He says, don't worry when you go into Babylon. I'm going to bring you back. I redeemed you. I bought you. And I have called you by name because you're mine. Collectively, I've called you Jacob so you know that you are heel catcher. So that you know that you are a supplanter. And I formed you, O Israel. The prince who has power with God. Who wrestled with God. Who found favor from God. I've called you by name because you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire... You will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you, because I am Yahweh, your Adonai. I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Astounding! And yet, it's everything we believe about New Testament salvation by grace when compared to our utter depravity. We believe that men are totally depraved. Therefore, all we can do, all we could have done, all we've ever done is rebel against God, sin against God, trespass against God, so that God would be well within his rights to say, no, never mind, not Leon. Have you seen him lately? No. And yet the response is, I've redeemed you because you're mine. I chose you before the foundation of the earth. And because you were mine, and I am the holy one, I'm the righteous one, and I'm the sovereign, omnipotent one who can do whatever he wants, I am the Lord your God. I'm the holy one of Israel, your savior. And so he saves Israel. He saves us. He saves the church, everyone he's ever saved. He did it not because they deserved it, but he did it because of his astounding grace. And as Paul keeps emphasizing, if it could be that God saved you because of something within you, if it could be that God saved you because you were good enough or righteous enough or did enough good things, then that's not grace. That's a debt that God owes you. And yet the Bible keeps declaring that salvation is by grace, which means you cannot possibly do anything that earns it. You can't possibly be deserving of it, or it's not grace. So God just described that. 
that Israel was really bad, really blind, really deaf, really rebellious, chasing after foreign gods. He was even going to make them a plunder. And even after he had shown his almighty power to them again and again, they weren't going to get it. They weren't going to comprehend it. They weren't going to walk by his righteous, glorious law. They weren't going to walk by his precepts. They were going to be continuously rebellious. So God had to do for them what they could not do for themselves. He needed to be their savior. He needed to to redeem them because they could not redeem themselves and that means that it isn't it couldn't be it never was anything within them it's all the glory and grace of God in his holiness in his righteousness saving people because he wants to Amen. and that's what he did for Israel and that's what he did for us and if you're going to claim that promise for you then you have to admit that is the same promise that belongs to Israel. But now, thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, he who has formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, You will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And then this astounding bit of sovereign language that is really hard to grasp unless you see God as utterly and completely sovereign. I have given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Sheba, or Seba, in your place. What does that mean? After Cyrus allowed Israel, allowed Judah to return back to Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple, to reestablish the worship of God, it was after that that the Medo-Persians went and conquered Egypt and Cush and Sheba. God took credit for giving those areas into the hands of the Medo-Persians. And he said, I gave those people who were crushed and destroyed by the Medo-Persians, they were your ransom. I put the punishment you deserve on them while I redeemed you. Isn't that amazing? Mm -hmm. You're talking about a really, really sovereign God here who can say, I used your enemies as a ransom price to buy you back. Incredible. I've given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Sheba in your place, since you are precious in my sight. I gave them as a replacement for you because you, you're precious in my sight. Since you are honored, and I love you. Can you imagine how wonderful it would be to hear God say, Micah, I love you. And be like, I'm good, I'm good, everything's good, it's all good, everything's good. Whatever else happens in this world, in this life, I'm good. I'm going to get through it because you know what? God loves me. It doesn't matter what anybody thinks of me. It doesn't matter what else happens. God loves me. In the New Testament, we read, that God demonstrated his love toward us by giving his son 
as a righteous propitiation for our sins. That was a demonstration of God's love toward his people. So he not only says who he loves, he then demonstrates it. He then sacrifices his son in order to demonstrate the great love wherewith he has loved us. So, you're precious in my sight, he says to Jacob, to Israel. You are honored in my sight, and I love you, and I will give other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. Oh, wow. Are you comfortable with a God who talks like that? I mean, that's a really, really incredibly sovereign God who says, I'm going to sacrifice other people for the ones I love. That's an astounding declaration. I'm going to allow other people to fall so that I can protect you. I give other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east. I will gather your offspring from the west. I will say to the north, give them back. Well, it says give them up. I just like give them back. And I will say to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar. Bring my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. God gets to pick and choose, and he gets to scatter Israel to the four corners of the world with the promise, I'm going to gather you again someday. I'm going to bring you back to this very land, and I'm going to establish you, and I'm going to protect you from your enemies. And I'm going to give you this glorious future. Tom, if you would, look up Matthew 24, 31 for just a moment. You probably know by hearing Matthew 24 that that is a very eschatological passage. That is the whole passage where the disciples have asked him, what are going to be the signs of your coming? And what's going to be the end of the age? And when are these things going to happen where you said that the... The stones of the temple, not one stone is going to be left on another. They ask the natural question, when? And then Jesus starts waxing eschatological and prophetic and starts explaining the things to come. And in Matthew 24, 31, he says the exact same thing that Isaiah predicted here, confirming that God plans to do this. This is what it says. And he will send out his angels with a loud... You know what? Read the verse before that. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. Now, what else can that possibly mean? I mean, I've heard that spiritualized so many times in so many different ways and applied to the church, though the church doesn't even, hasn't even really been formed yet in the history of the New Testament. Matthew is a very, very Jewish book, the most Jewish of the New Testament books outside of the book of Hebrews, but certainly among the Gospels, the most Jewish. 
And he's constantly making reference to things that are in the Old Testament. And so we see the promise time and time again in the Old Testament that God is going to scatter Israel to the north, the south, the east, the west. The four directions of the compass to the four winds. And then God promises that he's going to collect them from those very places. Do not fear, I'm with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west. And I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not hold them back. That is the four winds, the four compass points, the four corners of the earth. That all means the same thing. What Tom just read for us is that when the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, returns, he's going to send out his angel with a great trumpet to gather all Israel who are referred to as his elect because all the way through the Old Testament, the only only people who are ever referred to as the elect of God, the chosen of God, we just read it a couple weeks ago, is Israel the chosen of God. I have chosen you. And so Isaiah predicts that even though Israel is scattered, historic reality, that they are going to be gathered from the north, the south, the east, the west. And then Jesus confirms it, that when he returns, he's going to send out his angel with a trumpet, and he's going to gather his elect from the four corners of the earth from the four winds, and gather them back. For what reason? To bring them back to the very land that was given to them in perpetuity, to satisfy the Abrahamic covenant. The Bible just makes a whole lot of sense when you just read it and let it say what it says. Bring back my sons from afar. Bring my daughters back from the ends of the earth. And within this context, he's talking about Jacob, and Israel, because he is the Lord who is the creator of Jacob. He's the one who formed Israel. He's the one who called them by their name because they do belong to him. He is the Lord their God. He is the Holy One of Israel. He is the Savior of Israel. He has given other people over as a ransom for them, and therefore they are going to be returned to their land. They're going to be reestablished in the glorious kingdom that has been promised for them time and time again bring my sons from afar bring my daughters from the ends of the earth everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my own glory whom I have formed even those whom I have made bring out the people who are blind even though they have eyes and bring out the deaf even though they have ears okay so now we get it He's talking about the same people. He already said, who's as blind as my people? Who are as deaf as my people? And then he says, now call them. Call them all in. Bring them back to me because I love them, because I chose them. Bring me those people who are blind. Bring me those people who are deaf. That's not the church. Church is never referred to as the blind and the deaf. Never referred to as Jacob. He's talking about national Israel. Verse 9, all the nations have gathered together in order that the peoples may be assembled. Who among them can declare this? Everything he has just declared about how rebellious Israel is, how deserving they are of punishment, and how he is the God who, when he stirs himself up, can bring about massive calamity to the planet. He's the righteous, the holy one, who gave them a law that they ignored, that they did not do. He's the one who could punish them completely and adequately. And yet he says, 
He's going to save them. He's going to redeem them because he is their God and he has always loved them. And that he's going to redeem them on the basis of a sacrifice of other people, types and shadows galore right there. And then he's going to reassemble them, bring them back to the land that he has given them in perpetuity. And then he's going to gather the nations together and say, now, which of you could declare all the stuff I just declared and then make it happen? Nobody. That's his argument. Remember, this whole thing is God defending himself. This whole thing is God giving examples of, I do this, not you. And which of your gods can do this? The answer would be none. I'm the only God. Who among them can declare this? Proclaim to us the former things. Who who can do that? Who can declare the entirety of the history of the world and tell you why what happened happened? Who can proclaim these former things? Let them present their witnesses so that they can justify themselves, so that they can be justified by proving that they are gods by doing the things that I do. Go ahead, go for it, do it. Or, if they can't do it, then let them hear my argument and say, yeah, it's true. You're the only God. You're the only God who is because nobody else can do it. Turn back to chapter 41 in just a moment. Chapter 41, verse 21. This is the context. Present your case, the Lord says. Bring forward your strong arguments, the king of Jacob says. Let them bring forth and declare to us what is going to take place. And as for the former events, declare what they were, that we may consider them and know their outcome Or announce to us what is coming. Declare the things that are going to come afterwards that we may know that you are gods. Indeed, do good, do evil. That we may anxiously look about us and fear together. But behold, you gods, you foreign gods, you gods of wood and stone, you are of no account. And your work amounts to nothing. And those who choose you are an abomination. That's the context. This is all God's argument for who is like me. Who among the nations, when the nations are assembled, when the peoples are all gathered, will then declare, declare and proclaim the former things and the future things. Let them present their witnesses so that they may be justified. Or let them hear and say, it's true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord. And my servant, whom I have chosen, there's the election language. You're my servant. Which servant? The one we're talking about. Israel, Jacob. You are my witnesses. You're the ones who are going to declare me, even though you're not obedient to me, even though you're not following my law, even though you're not following my ways, the way that I treat you, the way that I punish you, the way that I redeem you is a witness to all the other nations that I am not only your God, but the God who is the God who can proclaim these things and do them. God is not only using foreign nations to demonstrate himself. He is using Israel and Israel's blindness and Israel's rebellion and Israel's redemption in order to demonstrate, I'm the only God who can do this. And you're going to be my witnesses. 
It's amazing. It's astounding language. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I chose. In order that you may know and believe me and understand that I am. That goes all the way back to Moses. I am. I am that I am. I am the only God who actually exists, and I'm going to do all this for you. Blind you, let you be rebellious, sit back and be quiet while you're rebellious, stir myself up and punish you, and then redeem you, and then restore you, and then give you a glorious future, and I'm going to do all of that so that people are going to say, well, there's nobody like that God. There's no one who could declare that and then do it in order that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, there was no God formed and there will be no gods formed after me. I, even I, am the Lord and there is no savior besides me. It is I who have declared. It is I who have saved. It is I who have proclaimed it. And there was no strange or foreign God among you who did these things. I'm the one who did it all. So you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Let's get the relationship right. Understand how we deal with each other. You're going to be my witnesses in the way that I blind you, in the way that I punish you, in the way that I redeem you, in the way that I restore you. I'm going to do all of that so that the whole world sees and the whole world understands and recognizes or stands guilty before me because no other God could possibly have done this, especially declaring it in advance before I do it. Who else could possibly do that? So I'm going to use you, Israel, in your blindness, in your rebellion, as a witness to me in the way that I redeem you, in the way that I restore you, in the way that I give you that, that heart of flesh and take out your stony heart, in the way that I bring you back to the promised land and get you from all four corners of the world and demand that you are returned to me. I am God, even from eternity. I am he, and there is none who can deliver out of my hand. In other words, you're my witnesses, like it or not. <laughs> you're my witnesses because I'm the all-powerful sovereign God. And nobody can stop my hand, and nobody can say, what are you doing? This is a characteristic of God that he's saying, there's no one who can deliver out of my hand. I act, and who can reverse it? Well, the theologies of men can't reverse it. The eschatologies of men who say, God is done with Israel, can't change a single word of what Isaiah just said. And God is controlling human history at this point. God is controlling human history at every point. God is controlling human history so that when it all wraps up, he can go, see, told you. I told you in advance what it was going to be like. I told you what was going to happen. And that ought to give you a great deal of comfort that even as the world right now seems to be incredibly stupid, even as the world right now is doing things that just defies 
any kind of intelligent imagination. The world is just going mad. And God is sitting on his throne, the same God who said, I'm going to do that, and then I'm going to restore it. And oh, yeah, new heavens, new earth. Oh, yeah, new Jerusalem. So that when you get there, you'll have no other choice than to say, it's true. You're the only God. You said you were going to do it. And then you did it. And you did it from what looked like impossible circumstances with impossible people, with rebellious sinners. You accomplished the sanctification of those that you chose and you brought them to the glorious future that you have promised them and you did it all by yourself. You are the absolutely holy, righteous, sovereign, singular, one God. You are him. There is no other. God, as I keep on saying, is in the enterprise of glorifying himself. And you see it time and time again in the Bible. And God, the only God, the biblical God, the real God, the only God who exists, says, okay, what do you got? What are you going to compare to me? He challenges every human on the planet and every so-called God to come up against him and demonstrate that they're anything like him because no one and nothing is like our God. Amen. Amen. It's a good section, isn't it? Yes, it is. This whole section, this whole part of Isaiah... It's wonderful. It's God's defense of God. It reads very much like Job's defense when God comes forward. It's, it's just like Nebuchadnezzar talking about God and all the inhabitants of the earth, the armies of heaven are nothing, and no one can stop his hand or say, what are you doing? He does all his pleasure in the, in the armies of heaven. It's just like David's God when he writes, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. It's just all the way through the Bible. It just keeps saying the only God who is is an absolutely sovereign God. And he will defend himself, and he expects you to recognize him too. He expects you to bow down and worship him because he's the only God who is. Okay, I think I'm done. (laughs) Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.